Wolf, get away from those sheep. Bollocks. You're listening to the Wolf and the Shepherd podcast. Broadcasting from Fort Worth in the great state of Texas. Now, get ready for this episode of The Wolf and the Shepherd. Welcome to this episode of The Wolf and the Shepherd. Today we've got something a little bit different. So The Wolf went on another podcast uh, with a good friend of his and did a guest appearance. And we're going to get to share that. So... Wolf, tell us just a little bit about your guest appearance. Well, it's actually somebody I've known for almost 20 years, and I coached them at soccer. But alas, they grew up, got married, had a kid, and started a podcast. Oh, nice. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Well, you're not going to hear any more out of my voice, so uh, maybe that's a blessing in disguise. Who knows? But all right, let's... Let's give a listen to the Wolf's guest appearance on the One One Thousand podcast. This is the One Hundred Thousand podcast. We are an audio magazine, keeping it one hundred, exploring a thousand topics. I'm your host, Ruby Avihana, and today we are talking with Tristan Abbott. Tristan is a soccer skills coach here in DFW. He was actually my coach when I was at uh, Lake Country as a middle schooler. Uh, so we'll get into that in a little bit, but uh, yeah, soccer and, and skills. He's got my. Uh, Got my foot skills a lot better than where I was. Um, he also does uh, cyber security. He is a cyber security contractor and a podcaster at the Wolf and the Shepherd podcast. It is in the top 0.5% of all podcasts in the world. So we're just a little bit ahead of him on the list. <laughs> we're not even close to what he's doing, uh, but really, really good stuff there. Uh, Tristan, man, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm really pleased to be here. I'm a bit concerned about the name, The Hundred. That sounds like a lot of effort to put in in one go. <laughs> yeah, The Hundred Thousand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have to keep it 100. So I can't I can't do any 99, oh. 97, none of that. You I'm gotta... used to keeping it around about 40, oh, to be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, we'll just hit the, the yeah. off note and yeah, we'll the be less, done for today. The less effort option. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. well, uh, thanks for jumping on with me today. Uh, I mean, you are most well known for i would say right now and and getting a lot of attention for the wolf and the shepherd um in the podcast that you guys started um tell me a little bit about that tell me a little about jumping in the podcast game was this something you had wanted to do for a while was it just kind of a a whim that became a dream and became a reality really quickly or or how did you guys jump into it i think for me it wasn't anything that i ever set out to do i think even when i was on the path to doing it I still wasn't that on board. My friend uh, Max, who's the Shepherd in the Wolf and the Shepherd podcast, he had the idea at the beginning of COVID that people were going to be home a lot more, maybe listening, you know, to podcasts. And we'd been sitting around talking for about five years, not about the same thing. We're normally quicker at solving problems than that. But he had this idea that, hey, look, we just sit around and talk about random stuff anyway why not let's just do a podcast on it put it out there and I said no for about six months and one day he just said hey let's just record something and it was terrible but I think we did end up (laughs) releasing it and we kind of went from there and now we're about 92 93 episodes in and it's certainly become easy you know, you just go in there and you just have fun. You sit down and talk. But it certainly wasn't something I was on board with to begin with because sure. it sounded like a lot of work. But once you get into it, it's really not much work at all. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, what? Um, how did you guys come up with the name, the Wolf and the Shepherd? Now, I know that w- the Wolf has been a, a persona of yours that you've carried since uh, since I was a, a wee 12, 13, 14 year old. So. Yeah, I'd had that nickname since I was about five. I got it from wow. watching an episode of Scooby Doo, and they came across a werewolf. And Scooby and Shaggy would obviously, you know, try and hide every time they heard the wolf howl. And I think about a week later in recess, I was playing soccer and each time I scored, I'd howl. And so I ended up like the nickname, The Wolf. And that's how I got it. Now, as for The Wolf and the Shepherd podcast, my friend came up with this idea. Would it be cool if The Wolf and The Shepherd actually just sat down and talked to each other and realized that, they're both really just doing a job. You know, the shepherd's trying to look after the sheep, the wolf's just trying to feed his family. Yeah. And they might find out they have a lot more in common, more in common than they don't have. And so that was the premise, or at least the kind of a philosophical backdrop to it. And my angle was, well, maybe the wolf and the shepherd are the same person. You wow. know, like you go into duality that it's different aspects, different yeah. personality traits that sometimes you have to be the wolf in your own life, sometimes you have to be the shepherd. Yeah. So that sounded all very complex and you know existential but really it was just the first kind of name we came up with after sitting around for a bit yeah so there's nothing there's nothing super deep in it and we i think we actually came up with those explanations to try and sound a bit cool after we'd actually come up with a name okay. so yeah <laughs> well that's that's kind of how things i mean that's how things work for this podcast i always think sitting around going like okay what do i name this I mean, i'm just not very good with titles in general um uh, and i was like just trying to think through i was like well what do i want to do with this well keep it real i want i want people to give uh, you know 100 percent when they come here and i want them to to be fully honest so 100 and i want to talk about a lot of different things and i thought well what about what about the 100,000 and just call it the 100,000 and stick two things together which actually mean two different things i looked it up there was no podcast that had that name i looked it up online didn't have anything else wasn't going to be you know riding on somebody else's coattails and somebody else's name so I just went with it. I mean, it's a simple, I think some people make these like, oh, we got to have this existential right discussion about, well, what do we want this to be about? And, you know, do years and years of research. And it's like, no, we just, we kind of came up with the name and our explanations almost came later. That's, it's interesting how you guys did that. Uh, yeah. I mean, you guys, and you guys talk about a ton of different topics. We, we like, I mean, the, the tagline for the show is talking about a thousand different topics, but I think you guys do that to the nth level and the nth degree uh we got three different episode titles here from february of this year so i'm just going to read them off the amish cancel culture and j-pop right i mean i don't i don't know how 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 different three different topics could be on the same podcast how did you guys come to that Uh, because i would say this the conventional wisdom is for new podcasters you have to be so niche that you gain an audience through the niche because you're you're hitting a point that nobody else has hit it seems like I would say you and I's podcast in this way are kind of zagging on that and saying, no, well, we're going to actually talk about a, a large variety of different topics. Yeah, I think your approach in that, you know, you're going to keep it real and give 100%. We decided we were not going to go either <laughs> of those routes, that we're far from keeping it real and 100%. It might be a cumulative total for the week if we've recorded three podcasts so maybe we gave like a third effort in each one but yeah we never really took that we wanted it wanted it to stay pretty casual and in terms of the topics again just in natural conversation across the years we spoke about random things and I think when I've 
perhaps eavesdropped on conversations in the past between people, I always find obscure topics or things you normally wouldn't hear people talk about more interesting than just somebody, you know, discussing something you've heard, you know, discussed maybe a dozen times that week already. In terms of the topics we pick, we figure that, you know, there's not perhaps much integrity from a, I guess, perhaps a journalistic view (laughs) because, uh, you know, you say take K-pop, right? It's big business and there are K-pop experts out there. Now, if you told somebody, you met somebody and they said, hey, yeah, I'm an expert on K-pop, although you might give a little bit of kudos and respect to the fact that this person is expert on K-pop, in your head, you're still thinking, well, that's a bunch of crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when we did a podcast on K-pop, we did it from the point where Max, the shepherd, knew nothing about it whatsoever, hadn't even heard about it. And my knowledge of it came from annoying intro ads on YouTube, (laughs) which I couldn't fast forward through fast enough. Okay. And about 20 minutes of research. And so that was enough to do a podcast on K-pop. Yeah. So obviously it had a lot of humorous approach to it. What was the point of it? You know, perhaps how does it compare to Western culture of, you know, boy bands and all this stuff? And you just run with it. Now, half of what we said, perhaps in that podcast, might be completely untrue because the sources for our data weren't well-checked or double-checked. But that's how we do a lot of our podcasts. Okay. Because that's what reflects natural conversation. People make points where they have very shaky ground for perhaps being definitive about their opinion but it's just what they've heard what they've read and again nowadays because most people's information comes from the internet there's a good chance it might be complete crap but we just run with it anyway we don't put in any disclaimers other than don't sue us because we don't have any money but yeah (laughs) i mean we yeah i mean we'll we'll run with anything i mean i don't think there's any topics which we won't touch the only one we had difficulty with we tried to write a podcast on clowns Really? And I spent two or three hours actually researching clowns and couldn't really find anything which would set the podcast in one direction or another. Mm. Other than doing the history of clowns, you know, going back to court jesters and all this type of stuff, right. and even going back to Egyptian times, there was nothing really you could run with to make it interesting. You know, I mean, you could be sitting there and be like, yeah, I don't really find clowns funny. I hate them. I don't really find them scary, blah, blah, blah. And that's it. Yeah. You know, in terms of pop culture, that's, that's it. You know, most adults don't find clowns funny and they've been in a few horror movies outside of that. Clowns don't really have much day to day touching of your (laughs) life as such. Everybody knows what one is, but try and hold a conversation about clowns for two minutes. Yeah, I don't right. think I could. Yeah, no, it would, can't it would really go devolve, anywhere. It'd devolve into something else, right? I'd start right. talking about John Wayne Gacy, or I would yeah. talk about uh, 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 Modern Family, where right. one of the guys is... Right, but so I'm not actually talking about clowns. I'm right. talking about people yeah. who dress like a clown, and uh-huh. now I'm on a, to a different topic. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, so did you Did you guys say... Did one of you say, hey, we should do something on clowns, and then you couldn't find a pathway to do it? Did somebody... Was it a listener that that uh, that wrote in, or how did you guys... How did you guys come up with the that topic in particular well i come up with most of the topics i do most of the pre-production work and i sat down and for some reason i don't know what triggered it it might have been seeing crusty the clown on tv or something <laughs> i thought oh yeah i'll do one on clowns because we had done i can't remember if the clowns one was before or after we did one on the amish 
and I thought, well, if I can get a podcast out of the Amish, I can get one out of clowns, but yeah. apparently not. So, okay. <laughs> and actually, I saw some Amish in the wild last week. I went to Colorado, and um, it's Rocky Mountains, and this coach pulled up. And a whole bunch of Amish people got off, some with iPhones, so they're obviously cheating yeah. a bit. Um, but yeah, it's weird. So I took, I think I actually took more photos of the Amish than I did of the mountains, oh just because it was surreal. I hadn't really kind of seen them in the wild before, yeah. other than like on, you know, TV. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, you, you've given me a you give me a challenge with clowns. Maybe I can. Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna thousand topics. Maybe that'll be one of the the episodes that I figure out and. Maybe I'll have you on for that. I'll now I think if I got, I think if I could get somebody who's an actual clown, a professional clown, okay, you know, not one who's been convicted for, you know, <laughs> paedophilia or something, you know, get an interesting guest on, just a day-to-day life of a clown because yeah. I know there's this, I don't know if it's this romantic type image that you know the face is painted smiling but underneath they're really sad and all that crap, but mm-hmm. um, I think I'd like them just to sit there and be like. Yeah, it's just a job. I don't, I can't say I enjoy it, but it's easy. And then you know, I put some makeup on my face, go, you know, throw some foam pies around for thirty minutes, collect my two hundred dollar check, and then I go home. Yeah, and I think that's probably maybe the same as people who play Santa at Christmas. You know, they Absolutely. put the suit yeah. on, collect a paycheck, go home. I don't think they have any intrinsic link with Santa. Right. You know, I think it's the same thing with clowns, and that's probably why it doesn't have that much legwork in it. I think we could have got together and found a bunch of funny news stories on clowns, people dressed as clowns doing ridiculous things. Yeah. But I felt we'd probably done that too much with other topics. It would just be a, the, maybe a photocopy of another podcast, but this time it's a clown doing ridiculous things. Right. You know. Yeah, well, I think the most popular the popular version of that, right? Or or somebody that it comes to mind when I think of clowns, I think of the clown prince of crime who's the joker right right you saw the the newer movie that came out with joaquin phoenix yeah they explore it but i mean it it doesn't have much to do with clowns i mean he does play a clown which is kind of different than some of the other takes on the joker um and that is it's for sure a more i'm I'm sure you've seen it i'm I'm making an assumption Mm -hmm. that you've seen it Um, yeah but it's uh definitely the sad clown and 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 the sad demented clown and the sad demented mental unstable clown uh but i mean those are those are the i mean i'm again i'm I'm trying to rack my brain for like pop culture references and it's the joker john wayne gacy and yeah maybe some some tv shows or something yeah i can't really think of any well i think there's there's always been something slightly sinister about clowns which why you know perhaps over this last five six years you know it's translated into a new kind of horror movie genre Obviously, Stephen right. King's book It, you know, had its first oh, yeah, made for TV, you know, adaptations like decades ago. But clowns have always had a bit of a creepy thing to them, even though they're supposed to be this symbol of, you know, mirth as such. I think when you go back to their original connections, and even if you go back to say, I don't know, you look at what is it, Greek demigod pathos, you know, one face smiling, mm. the other one frowning. And it, again, going back to this duality, two aspects of the same personality, but you're wearing a mask to really hide what's going on underneath. You know, with clowns, I think, uh, uh, like I said, there's always an uneasiness with them, but kids don't see it. When you're a right. kid, it's like, oh, it's a clown, it's somebody dressed funny, but they only start 
becoming sinister and a bit scary when you grow into an adult where normally those type of things would be the other way around you'd be like with a kid oh there's no reason to be scared of that yeah but they're not scared of a clown but then you know they get 10 years older and it suddenly becomes creepy you see a clown on the side of the road instead of the kid laughing you're driving kind of like all right i know i'm in a school zone but i'm going to be going 60 yeah Uh, yeah yeah yeah. wow no i i hadn't really i hadn't thought of how that kind of gets flipped because you're right if i saw a clown stopped on the side of the road I'm probably not stopping to help them change the tire. Right, yeah. I, I don't think so. Yeah. Versus, you know, if somebody's dressed like a, I don't know, uh, a doctor or, I don't know, a firefighter or something. Anybody else. Basically, any other costume. I'm not thinking, oh, what a weirdo. But there's, if it's a clown, uh, yeah, I'm blowing right past you. There's got to be easier ways of getting famous than being the victim of some clown who's raped and murdered you at the side of the oh road. So, plus, you know, I'm figuring if you can afford the clown outfit, you've also got some type of roadside assistance service which you should be calling in <laughs> rather than relying on random people to stop and help a clown change a tyre. Oh, man. Success wow. rate's got to be low, to be honest. Got to be, be low. Got to yeah. be pretty low. You probably, probably go into it knowing I got to get, get AAA to come help me because yeah. I'm not going to be able to do it. Right. Um, well, okay, so clown episode didn't work. Right. Uh, tell me your favorite episode so far. Maybe not the best one, maybe not the one that got the most downloads, but just your personal, oh man, I just, I love this episode. Was it a guest? Was it just you and, and your co-host going back and forth? Well, I think there's been a few. In terms of interviews, we keep most of them pretty serious because we let the guest drive it you know if it's a topic which might have some room for humor we will kind of navigate you know to various kind of ports of humor just to kind of keep it interesting because not every topic is interesting we actually had a guy come on who dug holes for a living Hmm. and we Hmm. before we had him on we thought oh right questions we're going to ask him kind of what's the deepest hole you've ever dug if you know if you ever dug down and you know discovered something freaky like you know hit a buried body or yeah. come across something like what on earth is this you know discovered a dinosaur or, yeah you know digging holes for oil so anyway it turns out this dude who digs the holes only digs like between 12 and 18 inch holes and he tends to do it in people's backyards if they're like having a uh, foundation for like a patio or something put down oh, no. so that's probably on us we should have done a bit more research and gonna say i could beat that guy we didn't get i can get lower than 18 oh my goodness we didn't uh yeah we didn't discover the depth of his hole digging until about five minutes into the podcast and it's like oh let's try and drag at least 30 minutes out of shallow hole digging so um you know you went there do you have any funny stories kind of thing no not really oh my goodness now if you actually go back listen to that episode Max and I, we do actually run completely to the point where, not where the guest is shut out, but we take control and try and steer it to to it something listenable. Now, that episode still isn't great. I I wouldn't go back and listen to it personally, but um, you do get people who are challenged. You think it's going to be an interesting topic, and it's really not. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But I think one of my personal favorites had a guy on called Landon, who's an ABA therapist for you know, children on autism spectrum. Okay. And he had worked with my son. And, you know, he was a really interesting guy. I mean, I'd had a hundred conversations with him before about stuff, but, you know, him telling his story of why he's involved in it, his vision and his understanding why he likes working with kids, although it was a very personal issue to me, I found it a very interesting, you know, topic as to why somebody would go 
that route because if you want to work with kids it's not the easiest route because you're not seeing neurotypical kids you're seeing kids which you know internally and externally you know are going through various issues and it can be quite heartbreaking you know but you need people like that in the world who will work with people who struggle um you know to make the world a better place i mean you know if you've got relatives if you've got elderly relatives who are sick or need care you need people even though it's a heartbreaking profession in a way you know to be able to step up and not break down <laughs> all the time in tears not be overcome emotionally and so i think i think that was uh, probably one of my favorite serious serious interviews we did because it was a very personal thing and it opened my eyes to it something which i don't think i could do although i have a good relationship with like you know kids and stuff having worked with them for close to 30 years i think kids in any type of turmoil or distress i'm too sensitive to be able to work with that i'll just be i'll just come home and cry all night till i fell asleep yeah and then wake up and probably cry some more but right yeah well i I got an interesting question not on our list at all but why do you think like occupations like that or, or people that work in hospice care or uh, or mental health professionals, people that really do have to do work that is, I would say, significantly more taxing, maybe emotionally. Why do you think that they're not rewarded with higher salaries and things like that? Like, do you think it's just they don't really generate revenue? Like maybe, you know, the CEO of a, of a Fortune 500 company that's generating millions and billions of dollars worth of revenue because I think that most people and society would say, man, those people, wow, what a, you know, what a servant. Even if you're not a, a Christian or even don't come in from that standpoint, you would say, man, somebody that works with, um, with children that are on the autistic spectrum, like, wow, that must be a really special person. And so I guess my question is, why, why don't we reward them more financially? Why don't we see that, uh, why don't we see that follow maybe the, the respect that's given to them just generally? Well, I think in almost any occupation in the United States and perhaps the Western world in general that people are rewarded for the amount of money their occupational work brings in, not necessarily the value socially of what they do. Hmm. People talk about teachers and they tend to be polarised in terms of views of teachers are overpaid or underpaid and perhaps some of the more prominent news stories over the last few months where you have people refusing to go back to school and teach in person even though the data regardless of your thoughts on how danger covid is that the data says young people are under very little danger there's more i think to date there's actually been more people died as an adverse reaction to the vaccine at a young age than there have actually died of covid at a young age and so incredibly ironic Uh, So, you know, young people are not at risk. And for a teacher to say, well, I don't want to go back in the classroom because I don't want to put myself at risk. Well, you know, if you do believe in, you know, the effectiveness of masks or the COVID vaccine, etc., there's got to be a point where you run out of excuses that, you know what, you're just lazy, you don't want to go back. You know, Zoom education is no way to get an education. The number, there's actually been more kids committed suicide where either the notes that have been left or the conversations they've had with family members or friends that, you know, when they've described the depression from the isolation Ugh. in COVID, then again, young people who have actually died from COVID. So for this has been her horrific experience for kids. Yeah. And for them to have, you know, pretty much their entire social life taken away, 
you know, with school not being in operation and then these teachers a year later say, no, it's too early to go back. You know, they've been sitting on the backsides collecting the paychecks. You know, they don't want to do anything but the Zoom calls. They don't want parents to be able to see the Zoom calls to see what they're teaching and stuff. And those type of teachers, you think kind of, well, yeah, they're overpaid because they're not doing anything. But then again, you have these other teachers who... You know, they see a kid who's struggling, they go out of their way to try and help that kid and they do that continually for, you know, 20, 30 years. They make huge difference in kids' lives, those type of teachers. Yeah, they're not paid enough, but the problem is on a case-by-case basis, you know, we don't have that ability to sit down and be like, oh, yeah, this teacher is worth this, this teacher is worth that. Now, if by what the teachers did, they were bringing in sponsorship money somehow. Mm. Sure. We figure out a way you know, to pay. Him. Okay, I, I, you know, I talked to little Timmy's dad in second grade, and his, you know, construction company is going to build a new fence for the school for free, and that teacher gets a ten thousand dollar bonus because the school had, you know, thirty thousand dollars set aside to put, you know, to pay for this fencing. That's the kind of model throughout society, basically how people get paid. The amount of money you bring in, the value right. you are to that company, reflects the value in terms of money. Now that doesn't reflect the social value of somebody in the job they do but that just happens to be the society we live in you know you're paid for what money you bring in people will criticize the ceo of kroger for you know maybe taking home a 10 million dollar paycheck last year even though he employs tens of thousands of people yet the same people won't bat an eyelid if beyonce makes 75 million dollars from a world tour where she employed 30 people for four months Mm. You know, so I yeah. think people look at it very differently with a certain amount of bias and it's it's a very kind of fake sympathy in some ways, I think, because it goes out the window very quickly. Yeah. You know? Um so along along those same lines, which would you say is more valuable? Would you say like the social aspect? So let's say let's say somebody uh is you know, has all the influence in the world because the community sees them as valuable versus uh, an engineer that nobody knows about, but he makes, you know, uh, $20 million a year, something, you know, something very significant that would set him aside from the rest of society. I mean, which which would you say is more valuable, that $20 million without maybe the notoriety or the, the influence or is the person that has, you know, all the influence in the world in the community they're in? Well, I think people come from two different viewpoints. There's the jealousy viewpoint that if somebody's making more money than you for doing something you consider less work or less skilled, then there's a certain amount of jealousy which comes in. But equally, I think people, when they observe other people's lifestyles, have a very, I I guess, dimmed view of what people do or they take... I guess the description of what that person does from what they see on TV, they don't really understand the ins and outs of things. You know, I mean, imagine like a vet, okay? People, a lot of people think, oh yeah, vet's a nice job other than you having to put animals down. But again, that that wouldn't be a job I could do. I I couldn't be there and have a kid crying over their dog I'm just to be able to put down. I'd be in tears all day long doing it. And it takes a special type of person to be able to do that. But you think of the number of people you know have pets probably almost everybody you've ever known has had a pet yeah and at some point you know obviously pets die and you know having somebody who hate who makes that process easier for you you know keeping your pet healthy and then when it comes time for your pet you know to be put down somebody makes that whole transition easier 
to me, I mean, that's a job I couldn't, I couldn't do. But I look at some other jobs and I think, well, yeah, I could do that. You know, I sat down, read a book, watched a YouTube video. I could do yeah. that. Now, I know that's kind of underplaying the perhaps the amount of work, you know, you need to do some jobs. But generally, I observe, I look at some jobs and think, yeah, I could do that. Yeah. You know, and I think the value people place, like I said, it's it, it shifts. People like, oh, do, I mean, during the pandemic, you know, people were oh doctors and nurses deserve you know so much more money for dealing with this well yeah it's a job for one right and believe it or not you know there are a lot more dangerous things in the world of being a doctor and a nurse than covid but all of a sudden people are like oh now they deserve more money mm. you know what about the guy what about the uh, technician who's working in the laboratory where they're trying to find a cure for cancer and his entire job all day long you know, maybe he works 50 hours a week, is cleaning off slides, cleaning out Petri dishes, making sure that room's spotless for people. How is he not just as valuable right. as that guy? He's technically maybe just a cleaner, lab technician or whatever, but the importance of what he does to make sure, you know, laying the groundwork that people can go in there and work off the bat and have confidence what they're working with is untainted. You know, people like that have a great value. So I, I hmm. really kind of dislike placing, I guess, a value on what people contribute especially when i don't really understand perhaps how they how that wage is set i mean who sets you know the going rate for you know what a lab technician gets is it the value they provide you know is it obviously people are better at cleaning than others i mean if i go in there and clean then you know <laughs> ebola's going to break out before lunchtime yeah. you know so but you get some people and they might be you know incredible yeah at it so but the point is if i went in there as an entry level and i'd be paying i'd be being paid the same amount of money as somebody went in there and did it and was awesome at it same thing you know you think musicians i mean there's so many musicians who you can listen to and think well this is horrible right but you know they're millionaires many times over and then yeah. you've got you know maybe an indie artist or somebody you hear you know when you're out at a restaurant you think oh this is really good and this person's you know maybe being paid twenty dollars for the hour yeah you know so it's not a case on what you bring to the table it's really what you bring to the table for other people which sets your wage yeah no that's that's a great point it it really is and and there's a lot more factors than just skill level right because yeah. like in using musicians is a great example because some of the greatest musicians will never you know they won't have the right marketing they won't have the right uh promoter they won't have the right for whatever number of different various factors they'll never be more popular even though their skill level is higher than you know some of these now especially with the the invent of auto-tune i mean so many of these singers really you best you just need a body that is able to do all the things that the people in the back are kind of pulling strings on and, yeah. and now you have a, a pop artist right um and you don't actually need vocal talent which you would think would be the well who has the best vocal you you, you sit around a, a table and you're in a music studio and you're thinking well how do we get how do we get more how do we sell more records well we need the best vocal artist like that's not even what they're looking for right. they're thinking we're going to do this map we're going to create this star and all we need is the person who will be able to fit almost similar to like a, a movie role right when you when you script out a movie except this is this is real life but you hear yeah. these music producers and music executives talk about this that we're looking for a certain type of person and yet there's somebody at the Applebee's down the road that has more vocal talent yeah and I think that's that's a little bit different between I guess actors and singers because 
right up perhaps into the 70s for you to be a musical artist I think you did actually have to have some talent and be able to sing sure there were a few novelty exclusions to that but if you were a singer you were expected to be able to sing okay but you know you take the early 70s mid 70s probably the pre-punk era where it was more about the passion in the music than perhaps the quality of musicianship Hmm. you take punk as a whole and the new wave movement which followed you had a lot of front men and front women in bands who the band was personality driven and attitude driven and lyric driven and perhaps the ability of the guitarist the lead guitarist and the singer wasn't as great as perhaps in the past but the character and identity of the music suddenly carried a lot more weight in terms of identifying with listeners and perhaps splitting society into genres um for once people had the choice to listen to one thing or another as opposed to what you were presented with right you know i think before music was like okay we've got 12 different flavors of milk here which one do you want you had to drink milk the right. only difference was it's a slightly different taste and flavor whereas music then split into being very very different from each other yeah do you think like it was just the the advent of of the like the technology getting a lot better and and maybe i mean the stones and the beatles obviously you know they they started incorporating and they they carry a lot of the uh i guess the the fame for you know the Beatles specifically. Well, they started doing sound that you know nobody had heard before, and they were doing all these different. They were experimenting with different musical styles. Do you think it was them? Do you think it was technology? Do you think is there a different factor that I'm not even putting in place? Well, that- I think you know using the Beatles and the Stones as an example. The Beatles were presented as more of a clean cut type thing, and the Rolling Stones a little bit more rebellious, and yet now you look back and you read the biographies and you know making of the band and they were both the same in terms of living things to excess you know especially John Lennon and you know you know for the Beatles and Keith Richards probably with the Rolling Stones you know two people who led you know pretty interesting lives pretty deviant type lives but one was presented in the media as one way and you know they were a wholesome band the Beatles which you know the reality was probably far from that i mean the drinking the drugs everything else but it was pretty much hidden yeah and it's really just the equivalent of perhaps you know the 90s version of backstreet boys versus nsync you know really it's the same category you're just I can't split in the same you're just split in the same audience i can't believe we're comparing them though i mean i know what you're doing yeah. i know what you're doing but just <laughs> yeah. in my mind i i recoil that but we're... it's a popularity yes. contest you yes know? Absolutely. And, and the reasons might be very trivial for like one over the other but I mean even if you take the musical style you listen to something by the Beatles like Helter Skelter that's as brash and archaic as a lot of the stuff the Stones did in terms of style Hmm. and so I think the division between Beatles and the Rolling Stones was kind of paper thin it was just how they saw a market somebody thought okay we're going to go over the rebellious market we're going to go after the awesome market where you know the Beatles singing mostly love songs yeah. all this type of things and so they went had a little bit too much influence from psychedelics <laughs> yeah. um, but you know I think nowadays people want to find something they belong to and 
I remember when the Smiths came out you know we didn't have internet didn't have anything else and you'd listen to the Smiths and most people didn't really like them they found them a bit depressing and it was coming off the back of you know the kind of new romantic type movement with like Duran Duran Spandau Ballet you know Flock of Seagulls all that type stuff where the music was all very uplifting and all you know almost kind of like glam pop went from glam rock to glam pop glam synth pop but you had the Smiths and it's very melancholy you could call it depressing but a lot of people kind of identified with lyrics in those songs and felt that they didn't have anybody to talk to those things about things were too personal this was in the day where especially if you're a guy you had to suck it up if you're feeling depressed well suck it up put on a smile put on the clown paint right put that smile on regardless how you feel underneath and people didn't know there were other people out there who felt like that because you just didn't talk about it yeah it was easy to get disillusioned and stay disillusioned and I think you had a whole generation of people who stayed disillusioned their whole life because they had no outlet you know socially with friends or family to talk about weaknesses something like unrequited love can mess up two or three years of your life because you're pining you know for somebody and yet you don't tell anybody you don't tell the target of that (laughs) you know love and people go through it and they feel almost like they're freaks like nobody else is going through it and musical lyrics you know again with the example of the smiths you found a way to identify as like somebody singing my song talking about how difficult this is and but then you feeling like this is truly a personal relationship between me and this band and these lyrics because they apply to me and then you don't know but there's 10 other million people out there are feeling exactly the same way but with the beauty of the internet and social media people were able to find each other you know other than okay I'm going to go to this watch the Smiths who knows who's going to turn up and then you're there among 30 other thousand people who feel exactly the same way as you do and now it's easier to find those groups and live that type of inclusion 365 days a year now you can be yourself because you can find somebody else to identify with Mm. you know that opportunity didn't used to exist and I think that's why there's probably been more focus on mental health over this last 10-15 years because people are more willing to speak knowing that there's other people suffering like I'm suffering because what was the benefit before about speaking up about weaknesses other than perhaps showing that you've got weaknesses you wouldn't think it would help somebody else yeah vulnerability wasn't seen as a positive trait right right? now you got people like Brene Brown who's like championing vulnerability and so now it it almost seems like there's almost this Olympics of who can be the most vulnerable yeah I think it's gone I think it's I think it's gone too far I mean I know I I know people joke about it but both people on the left and the right joke about this whole nanny culture now where people need to be kept in diapers until they're you know 18 years old in a way that you can't let them make their own mistakes now I know both you and I growing up you know we made mistakes and some of them were great teaching points some things the teaching points don't come out till years later Hmm. because if you don't understand the motivation of why you did something perhaps that learning point doesn't come out until you do understand why you did that thing and I read a book maybe about 20 years ago and one of the most frequent things people all around the world say at some point 
and multiple multiple times during their life is if I could go back in time I would change or I wouldn't do this or I would do that and the truth is if you did go back in time without the benefit of that knowledge of that event you would more than likely make that exact same choice again because <laughs> yeah. there was a reason why you made that choice what you think is something off the cuff and just a random choice isn't there's a reason you chose tails you were always going to choose tails mm. now it might be a one in a thousand there might be something but now you're going into this whole alternate universe what would have made you suddenly turn to heads at that time but you feel there's no motivation for you choosing tails but there might have been a hundred different things which made you choose tails and you choosing that tails that one night may have led you to having that extra shot of alcohol which makes you drive home and you shouldn't have and you crash you could have killed somebody and so something as insignificant as tossing a coin and choosing had a great deal of influence on it and so you could say oh I could go back in times I've chosen heads well no you wouldn't have you'd have gone back in time and chosen tails yeah well and and some of the ways that we even know how memory works now right and they they did this uh, I can't remember which research group did it but they did it with using Mm 9-11 and saying uh, so like the day after 9-11 they pulled in something like a thousand different people and they said give your your recount of your experiences on the day of 9-11 this is like 9-12 mm-hmm. 9 and like the week after that and so yep. they got pretty well right so people remember usually yesterday and the day before and, and those kind of things and even a week you can have a pretty good memory of what happened so they what they did was they compared them they brought them in a year later and they tried to have them say like what was your experience yeah. that day compared it i think they did it five years and then at at 10 years i believe and they showed how and they would play it for them at like the 20 year mark they're playing this is what you said the day of this is what you said a year later this is what you said five years later and what they realized was your brain starts to take you know it it can't make a 100 percent clear picture of what you remember that day and so what it does is it pulls these pulls these memories from other places that you're not aware of and certainly you know the researcher has no idea but it begins to build these stories and you believe they're true and nobody can convince you of them unless you know somebody says listen here's your voice from the day after saying what you did but if you would ask that person you know, at, at the 20 year mark where were you they would say oh I, wa- I walked out of the room and I went left and you're telling them no you don't understand you actually went right and so I go down that point to say our, our brains I'm sure with some of this stuff remember these different you know, poor choices or choices that we made and we forget the reasons for why we even made that choice in the beginning because it didn't work out for us, right? So we erase it or we take it as, oh, we that was just a bad choice rather than I bet if we went back, you know, uh, if we had a time machine, went back in the moment, like you said, I think we would realize, and not with every choice, right? You can't just say this is every single choice, but I think that plays a bigger factor. I think we remember and our memory uh, betrays us at times. Yeah, I think... A certain amount of that is self-protectionism. We all have things which trigger us more than others. And some, whether it be visualizations or sounds, stick with us more than others. And we tend to cut out things we find uncomfortable, mostly on a subconscious level. You'll find your subconscious will rewrite your memory of something to make it palatable. Hmm. Some experiences or memories can be so extreme that your subconscious tries to shut it out altogether. And anything which might act as a trigger to bring back that memory um, again your subconscious works over time to try and 
uh, I guess, soften that trigger so it doesn't bring back certain memories. But it's funny you bring up this topic because literally last night, talking um, earlier about my son who has autism, he's going through a period at the moment where on my phone he's constantly going through the album of his own photos right from when Mm. he was born and I've got about 3,000 photos and videos on my my phone of him but I also have on a jump drive I don't know maybe like about 500 photos and videos which I copied onto the jump drive and I plugged into the Xbox and actually show on the big TV and recently he's been wanting to see those videos and photos on the TV and on the phone and sit there and just kind of look and I was trying to think why is he so suddenly obsessed and it kind of came to me that you know with his autism because of the his sensory needs and wants are very different to ours that he might find something overbearing in terms of like say maybe the sound of air conditioning that might be the loudest thing and he can always hear it even though you and I might not even be able to notice it and so his memories of a certain situation might be oh yeah I remember sitting in that room I could hear the air conditioning and the light was very bright now you and I might go sit in that room light not be particularly bright and we might not be able to hear the air conditioning but his memory of that is you know different different than ours and so when he went through his childhood his early childhood having autism his memories of certain situations are more sensory based and it's based upon how he felt at that time you know what his senses took in and another child a neurotypical child you know without autism his if he did exactly the same things might have completely different memories and recollections and i came up with this theory actually last night that i think the reason he's now looking at these photos and videos is he's going back almost rewriting his own memories because what he remembers might not be accurate or might have the wrong exaggeration or weighting on a specific thing where a lot of the other experiences he might have completely ignored or didn't take in and now he looks back and it's almost like a new experience he can see himself and be like oh yeah i remember that toy over there i remember this i remember this day because of something completely different of why he would have remembered it before so he's almost like going back and reverse engineering and rewriting his memory seeing things how it's you know how i saw it perhaps through my eyes or how he would have seen it through his eyes if he was neurotypical and it's kind of a bizarre thing because you can see him when he plays videos over and over he gets fixed perhaps on things which he might not have taken in at the time mm. and so yeah that's uh we do remember things differently but i mean my biggest memory about 9 11 if you go back to that some people the image of the planes crashing into the towers was the most iconic memory from that day but you know, I've been in a war zone, you know, I've seen people die, I've seen planes crash and stuff. So to me, yeah, as bad as it was, it wasn't, you know, I guess as uh, touching, I, I don't know what the right word is, because everybody, unless you were there, were kind of isolated for a bit. And in some ways, I think that made things almost a little more difficult because it happened in the United States of America we're in a different state but we were still watching it on tv in the same way as somebody was watching it on a tv in new zealand yeah you know that it felt like part of our close community but again here in texas i mean i can't remember how far away new york is at the moment but you know we're still it's still a great distance yeah (laughs) say hi hi (laughs) what are you eating 
<laughs> I think many people remembered 9-11 in different ways dependent upon what affects them a lot of people were very shocked and still in shock to this day at seeing the sight of planes going into the World Trade Center but you know when you've been in a war zone and you've seen planes crash you've seen people die you get a little bit desensitized to that part of it I think the part which stayed with me the most was perhaps a couple of days afterwards and some footage on a late night news station of people putting up posters of people who were still missing who hadn't been found and there was a group of maybe half a dozen people pinning pictures of kids wives husbands to this small wall and the camera zoomed out and it must have been about 200 yards of wall just people just pinning posters of missing people and that impacted me more than the visualization of you know the actual planes hitting themselves just the loss and the not knowing of people you know around that that hit me more than the visual aspect of the actual day I think that's what I remember more I guess the actual emotional and social aspect wow yeah yeah I mean I remember it I was uh, 12 I was in 6th grade science class mm-hmm. it was in, her name was Mrs. Roberts it was Miss Roberts class right. I can remember Mrs. Jordan coming she was the assistant mm-hmm. principal she comes through she says something to her and you can tell, I mean, even when you're 12, you can start to pick up on yeah. adults and you can you can tell it was tense. But you know, yeah. we had no idea. Right. And then she explains, Mrs. Robert, our science teacher, right, sits here and explains to us, tries, you know, the best as she yeah. can, what just happened. And the first thought that I'm thinking as a 12-year-old is, what's the World Trade Center? I didn't even know what it right. was. Yeah. Had no clue the impact. Um, but then I can I can remember little things like going to lunch and coming back from lunch and some kid being like, yeah, there's two planes that are coming here to Texas. And I remember being like, what are they going to hit in Texas? Like, <laughs> what are they going to do? You know, it's just right. these rumors. So you can only imagine what it was. I can only imagine what it was on a, the adult scale. But, you know, for kids who have no compass, like they just have no idea. There were certain kids that were terrified. I mean, yeah. they were terrified that planes were going to come hit their house. Right. And I'm thinking, like, they're only going to hit things that are important. And just this callousness toward... I didn't feel that. I mean, I didn't yeah. feel like, oh my gosh, people died. I I just didn't get it yet. I mean, as even as right. a twelve year old. I mean, so those are like my memories around it are very much more like, I think, we just as a as an American society, it would see you know would see things like well people coming together and uniting around it. And there had been some definitely some opposition to President Bush at the time, but he was so new that it was kind of like this. And then it seemed like the world uh, the world. Uh, the world for the most part, but definitely the United States kind of coalesced around this idea with, uh, yeah, with, with coming together. And it's interesting. I mean, you can take this as either any way that you would like Tristan from here. Cause I'm throwing a whole bunch of stuff for, at you, but it seemed, I kind of thought COVID was going to be that for this generation. And it seems like it's not, it does not seem like something that's coalesced together. It seems like we've become more, divided more uh what's the word but more more polarized i don't know so you could take that any direction that you'd like from there yeah i feel if you took 30 seconds of footage from 9-11 perhaps you made a montage right you could communicate effectively with a little narration 
to perhaps a kid in a hundred years time and they would understand the impact perhaps that would have on society i think with covid because it was heavily politicized right from the word go and we have had information which was written in stone one month and then apparently (laughs) we find out it's written in silly putty you know it's not it's not accurate and certainly young people have been least affected by it and the majority of people don't perhaps know anybody who's died or has been seriously sick with it i had covid for maybe an evening i wasn't sure whether it was allergies or not but tested positive for the antibodies and hey you had covid you know my son had it my girlfriend had it my son's mom had it and you know nothing I mean, it was really, really nothing. It didn't impact us at all. And we don't know anybody who's been really sick with it. I know tons of people have had it, but everybody's just had the kind of mild, cold symptoms, really. So, you know, it hasn't had such a widespread impact on everybody. And so because everybody has a completely different experience, I don't think it has that unifying factor where Mm. you could just show perhaps, like I said, the images from the World Trade Center with some narration, probably show that to any kids in any country in the world of a certain age, this is with kids, and they would see that and, you know, they would understand what type of impact that would have. You know, it's visually disturbing and you can understand the aftermath. Now, in terms of damage, I think it's very difficult for younger people, and you said you were 12 at the time, to right. understand truly what terrorism is because it was never an attempt to kill as many people as possible. Right. It would have been a lot easier to have smuggled a bomb into a sports stadium, you know, crashed a plane into a stadium while the game's going on. You know, yeah. why not go while the Yankees are playing, you know? So it wasn't about loss of life. It was about destroying previously untouchable things like the pentagon or iconic things such as the world trade centers that we can strike at the heart of you know western civilization and affect the things that matter you know loss of life you have to remember you know the united states had been through two world wars in the previous century and had massive loss of life over a longer period perhaps you know in vietnam there's a lot of a lot of loss of life and so you know lives when you put them into large numbers become less meaningless than when they're in lower figures if you say like nine people you know died in a fire that has more impact than 30,000 being people being killed in perhaps a country in a you know landslide or something right you know that once numbers get so large it desensitizes you your mind can't cope with or can't break down that amount of individual Suffering, so you group it together and then you don't identify with something once it becomes in such a large group. All the individualism kind of goes away. You forget yeah. that's 30,000 individual stories. It just becomes one story, and that story is about a landslide that killed a lot of people. Right. It's interesting you say that because, like, using that as an example, like the death of Kobe Bryant last mm-hmm. year, about about 18 months ago now, because there were eight, there was eight people. There was the pilot, there was his, his daughter, and then, you know, five other I think it was young girls that were basketball mm. players. Um, and I mean, for a lot of reasons that had a lot of impact, but I think because it's interesting that you say the small number, because I thought that I was like, man, it's really only like eight or nine people. And it's interesting. Cause when I was young too, I had to speak to the other point. Uh, one kid, his name was Dakota 
he was like, well, why didn't they hit Three Mile Island? Like, that's a nuclear thing. That could have, like, you know, blown up. Why didn't they Why didn't they crash planes into that? And that's the way I thought of it. I was like, yeah, why did they go? I mean, 3,000 people, that's a lot. But that's I thought the same thing. Well, Texas Motor Speedway holds 250,000 yeah. people. But it was more about the symbolism, right? And it was mm-hmm. more about... The, I didn't understand terrorism, and I remember my, you know, I'm trying to understand it as a 12 year old, and I think, you know, it took years before I was like, yeah. oh, this is why it's not necessarily the numbers. Yeah, I mean, I think if you read something like The Art of War, you understand terrorism as a tool to try and achieve something, because if they had attacked something like Three Mile Island the retribution would have been on such a scale that, (laughs) you know, it doesn't matter how you try and spin it, you know, to your populace that, hey, we attacked America, we gave America a bloody nose. But when America turns around and drops, you know, three atomic bombs on you in retaliation for attacking Three Mile Island and wipes out 50% of the population, it doesn't matter how much spin or how much PR, you know, you have on your news channels, the fact they've just wiped out half your country be like yeah we probably better not do that again you know it's not as you don't count that as a victory given the giant a bloody nose it's like yeah and they're all cheering but when the giant comes and stamps out your entire village to death it doesn't feel quite so much as a victory and so you know people perhaps you know misunderstand terrorism as an objective as what it's trying to achieve it's minute victories to continue a power hold in those countries a lot of the time like hey look we we can do this we can strike anybody anytime we want which again it, it might be true in a respect but as fanatical as some of these terrorists are they're also smart enough to realize there's only so far you go before uh, you know, you can only poke the sleeping bear too much. Yeah, well, they, and they only have as much firepower, right? Because that was a scary thing. Everybody was like, well, what if one of these guys gets a nuke? Or what if what if Iran develops the program? Well, or- again, that's not, um, not something difficult. Getting hold of, you know, plutonium, uranium, making a dirty bomb is not a difficult thing in today's society. I mean, anybody can go online and pretty much build anything as long as you have what you need. And... Certainly, you'd think if China hated us as much as the press try and make out that they would have financed a rogue country or individual. You know, it's not difficult to say, take somebody who's dying of cancer, who may be in their 50s, and they have a poor family, and somebody comes to you from an intelligence agency of a country like China and says, hey, look, we know you're dying anyway. Strap this bomb to yourself. We're going to get get all the papers sorted out. You go to this country, you blow yourself up in a stadium. We promise you we'll take care of your family. We'll make sure that your family's given enough money so that, you know, your children, your children's children, all your relatives are all going to be taken care of. That would have happened a thousand, ten times, ten thousand times over if that was truly the aim, you know, of a country like China or Russia to do damage to the United States. I mean, they could pollute the water system. They could make sure that nobody would feel confident enough to go to a shopping mall or do anything if they really wanted to but they understand that the consequences of retribution again you can only push it so far and what might seem like a major incident like 9-11 it certainly was a message to the rest of the world like United States aren't untouchable 
but that was probably as far as you could push it. I mean, we did go, we did retaliate with a kind of immediate, somewhat war, if you could call it a war. But no, I think most terrorists are part of a more insular, closer to home type plan than really, you know, going for world domination. I mean, they realize that, you know, just hitting the World Trade Centers, America's not going to be, forget it then, you know, we'll turn, you know, we'll suddenly follow Islam or your sect of Islam, whatever it is. Um, yeah, it's, and, and you know what's been interesting is, you know, a lot of the, anybody that was speaking against the United States going to war or anybody that was saying, well, this is a result, right? It got, you know, you talked about the PR people and the mm. spin. Well, this is a result of colonialism. This is a result of the United States, you know, in, in foreign affairs and they're doing this. And, and now we have, I mean, right now as we're recording this, we have this massive pullout where uh, President Biden is pulling mm-hmm. our troops out. And as quickly as we're pulling out, the Taliban is sweeping in. And I mean, we, we see it. They're taking back right. all of the control that we had while we're there. And, that, and then it becomes, I'm interested to hear your, uh, to take this in a little di- different direction, I mean, you coming from England, you guys—I mean, if colonialism was a thing, right? You, you guys had the kingdom that spread right. the earth, yeah. And so, how do you? I guess how do you balance, you know, the United States's influence as a protector of innocent people in Afghanistan, but also saying, well, we have a responsibility to our folks here at home, um, and you know, and and like to your point. It's not about the loss of life because I think it was like 22 people have died in the last year total, like in you know uh, 2020 that died in in Afghanistan. And so right. it's not about oh we got all these boys dying overseas, but it's more about the idea that hey we're pulling them out so that we don't continue. If I'm understanding right, what he's saying, well we don't want our influence there. We don't need to be there. They can rule themselves. And so I guess what's the what is the balance between you know that isolationism. And setting our own house in order and still standing up for the rights of people that are in these kind of countries. Well, I don't think, first of all, you're ever going to please everybody. Um, you know, using a, using a sports reference and one reference I like to use, especially in regard to soccer, when you're coaching is that when you divide teams up and you give a kid a vest, right, you have this vest which you've bought from the store or online and you give it to the kid and most of the time it doesn't fit because it's that one size fits all. But yeah. what one size fits all, more accurate would be one size fits nobody. Mm. Because there are always gonna be people who are too tall, too short, too fat, too thin, and it's never really gonna fit ideally. And so one size fits all really does become, it disenfranchises more people than whatever, but you can live with it. And I think America's role in the world, as long as it's not too extreme, that the rest of the world I guess puts up with it because they don't want to get involved for one I think they see the mess in the Middle East and realise that if it goes unchecked certainly three or four rogue nations getting hold of you know the capacity to be able to build nuclear weapons is unsafe even if you're a country like Switzerland which tends to keep neutral through everything but the thing is if you know if I bombed your apartment complex across the road it's not going to not have an effect on you and it's the same thing with countries you have to understand that if your neighbor in a country which is the enemy of somebody else then you're going to get 
you're going to be affected one way or another. Absolutely. And so the rest of the world, they like to say, oh, America's a big bully. It gets involved in foreign policy where it should, shouldn't. But secretly, they kind of welcome it because they see the need for it, but either don't have the strength or influence themselves to do it, or they just too scared because, you know, no, not every country has the ability to be able to fight a dirty war. And we've found out, right, going back through from Vietnam, you know, right up to date in Afghanistan, fighting dirty wars is a long drawn out process with yeah. very little victory to celebrate. You know, when you hear on the news that, oh, we killed 30 Taliban commanders, people don't understand what scale and what that means. I mean, so we killed 30. If we'd have killed 50, what difference would that have made? If we'd have only killed five, what does that make? And it's hard to measure success. Yeah. And people traditionally have measured wars by either you've won or lost them and, all right, the war's over, we're bringing everybody home. Was that a victory? I don't know. I don't know. Ever. You could count Afghanistan as a victory. That was an area of the world which has had a power vacuum which everybody whether it be tribes, uh, Russian interference, or us going over there, everybody's tried to fill that vacuum, but it's never worked. I think Afghanistan right. is one of those places in the world where it is tribal and you're always going to have tribes fighting and there will never be peace because the people who are actually indigenous to that area, they've come from a tribal history. They used to be in tribal. I don't think there's anything which is going to unify those people because there's hundreds if not thousands of years of bad blood you know yeah it's it's very different than i think we've grown up i'll just say for myself i mean i've grown up in a the idea of a nation state is just the way that people i just assumed oh that's how they organize themselves oh i'm an american this period you know this group of people is this but it, even like using a country like germany where like yes they're all german but you have like the kingdom of bavaria or you have like right. hundreds of different identities yeah. even in there and then you go well take it to afghanistan who like they don't nobody there is saying like i'm i'm from afghanistan like that's that's where i see my identity they see themselves right like you said like a tribal identity yeah and so they don't fit in the boxes that uh, maybe maybe you could say the West, but let's let's just say the map makers, for lack of a mm -hmm. better term, the people who draw maps, like and say, oh well, all of these people now identify. Uh, you see this in with the Kurds um, in Iraq, and uh, but yeah, I think it's hard for us to understand that because we just assume. I'll just say for myself, I guess I just assumed growing up, oh well, they see themselves that Afghanistan, those people are the bad guys. That's just how I saw it. I didn't see. Yeah. Well, Osama doesn't see himself as a leader of Afghanistan. He sees himself as a leader of of more of an idea and more of a tribal uh, chief rather than a president, right? And yeah. I, do we have, I mean, maybe, I don't know. Maybe I'm way off in the weeds, but it doesn't seem like we have good categories. And so we can't really, we Westerners can't see that and understand it maybe. Or maybe I'm off. Maybe a, that doesn't make well, sense. Well, I think we felt... Part of the pressure on the world stage, especially when it comes to foreign policy, is that we're taught in the Western world from a very young age that if you see something which you perceive as injustice, that you're almost just as bad as the perpetrator if you don't get involved and try and stop it. Mm. And America as a nation, I feel, 
you know, there are people who feel we shouldn't get involved under any circumstances unless it's a direct attack on our soil. But the majority of people feel like we should be standing up for, you know, the innocent, the afflicted. If we, what we think we can clearly see as a victim, that we need to go and confront the bully and either, you know, give them a hard enough warning so that they don't do it again or completely remove the bully, you know, from existence. And there is that. I think it's something which we all grow up with because that's what we're taught that you know if you see injustice then you know if you do nothing then you're just as bad or if you if you even if you're not as bad you can't come out of it with any type of credit mm. just because you didn't get involved in the bullying yourself doesn't make you any better a person if you stood by and watched that person getting bullied and so I think we grow up with that in our psyche and I'm not sure outside of the Western world what other cultures if they grow up with that type of thing. I don't understand what it means to grow up within a rational hatred which has been preached to you entirely by media and propaganda to the point where you never question it. But then we could turn around and be like, okay, well, why do people, you know, have a mistrust of Russia or China? I mean, we haven't gone to war against either country. Yeah, we had a Cold War, but that was more like, you know, a couple have had an argument and not talking to each other. Yeah. You know, it wasn't really a war war. But, you know, our propaganda in the West did enough to make us mistrust China and Russia. And, you know, we accuse them of human rights violations, but we put the microscope on ourselves and our own history, whether it be, you know, from where I'm from in England or, you know, here in the United States. It's not like we're innocent of, you know. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. <laughs> You know, throwing our aggression around the world and, I guess, looting the resources when it suited us. So yeah, it's um, yeah, it's difficult. I don't think there's any right or wrong answer about interventionism. Certainly, if something happens and we didn't get involved, there's a certain weight of individual guilt and national guilt. If right. that thing then gets worse, so it's like, well, okay, we could have prevented it, but then obviously you're going to meet the other side of people being like we shouldn't get involved it's not our war it's not our place i don't think there is a right or wrong answer i think most recently we we saw this with syria right the civil war starts about 10 mm-hmm. years ago 2011 uh it's clear assad is uh bashar al-assad like he is he's obviously been a tyrant over his people i mean maybe and mm-hmm. maybe not I, i'm lebanese and my dad is from lebanon and uh I, we won't get into all that but syria played a major role in oppressing the Lebanese people sure. for a long time. So obviously I'm I'm coming from a big place of bias here when I yeah. talk about Assad specifically, but even on the world stage, once, you know, uh, President Obama said, you know, he drew a drew, I'm quotation mm. marks, drew a red line and say, well, if chemical weapons are used, yeah. now I'm going to do something. Mm. And then there wasn't the response, and then it was like, well, should we shouldn't we and it was like, you know, it, it seemed like this weird dance of and again, I I uh, I don't have the right answer. But it seemed like, well, what is the world's responsibility when we clearly see somebody doing something? And, and you're right, there there isn't a clear-cut answer. It's like, well, how many people do they have to kill before we call it genocide? And the U.S. Right. tried to define that. But, I, yeah, I, I don't have a good answer. I mean, what what is the responsibility of a country, right, where we do have resources, yeah. we do have influence? Well, I think perhaps, you know, the United Nations, if it fulfilled the role that... <laughs> said 
it was set up for there would be no need for interventionalism from countries like the United States, but the United Nations are like a paper tiger. Theoretically, they have all this power because they have representatives from every country in the world at a debate table, but the UN, outside of perhaps advisory powers, doesn't really care any weight. The United States doesn't need the United Nations. I don't know really any country on earth that really needs the United Nations because it doesn't give the smaller countries a voice. They're very rare. They're not on the important security councils and trade councils. Um, It's like being invited to a seminar where you never get the chance to speak or do you, you know, give your opinion, but you're supposed to feel valued just because you're in the room. But the end of the day there's no difference between you sitting at home and listening to the same people talk just being in the room doesn't change anything but my experience of the united nations you know going back to the yugoslavian civil war i was there uh with the military oh I and didn't know that. Wow. yeah in okay. uh, bosnia herzegovina and just south of sarajevo a kind of military intelligence role and the un basically allowed genocide to occur they the rules they placed on their peacekeepers and the movement of the peacekeepers you know they moved them around like a game of chess where they didn't want their own pieces to be taken Hmm. and it was yeah i mean it was a complete mess i mean you take the genocide in rwanda uh cambodia anywhere around the world the united nations has done nothing outside of issuing statements of condemnation and the peacekeeping forces are always put in visual places which have no impact you know the uh bounties on the blue helmets the un because nobody's going to retaliate the united nations don't have an army as such where if somebody you know bombs you know and kills 200 united nations peacekeepers what are they going to do nothing they don't do anything yet you know, you bomb 10 US troops, we're going to come in there and retaliate and do something about it. The United Nations, they're pretty much toothless in that respect. And, you know, I don't feel that having a few countries having influence around a table at the United Nations has any better outcome for the world than if the United Nations didn't exist. You know, I think it's, oh, the United Nations are, are handling it. It's like, it's like a bear looking after your baby. I don't. I don't feel that confident about. Well, not even a bear. I'd say it's more like a jackal, because a bear is quite a majestic, strong animal, can fend for itself, whereas a jackal's just a, you know, <laughs> eating roadkill a lot of the time. I mean, they can be aggressive, but yeah, I, I just don't see the value of the United Nations. I really don't. But that's the same with a lot of world organisations. You know, the World Health Organisation. I mean, it's so, so corrupt. Yeah. Um, you can't trust anything they say. It's funny how, again, that's been politicized during the pandemic. You know, people are like, oh, you need to trust the World Health Organization. But at the moment, um, World Health Organization and the CDC are in direct loggerheads over something at the moment. I read it yesterday, but I can't remember exactly what it was. And it's like, well, look, they don't agree. So who do you follow? Do you follow the WHO? Do you follow the CDC? Because I remember when this pandemic first came out and, you know, the World Health Organization said, yeah, it can't be transmitted from human to human. Right. Uh, yeah. Then there was the whole, well, masks January. won't do anything because of the size, you know, the micron size of the virus will get into your eyes even if it doesn't get 
you know, in your nostrils through your mouth and it'll get through most most masks anyway or, you know, if it's on surfaces, then again, the mask is going to be useless. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's been difficult going through this, not having anybody you can really trust because you don't believe anybody doesn't have a motive behind it. And, it, you know, I'm a conservative, mainly fiscally than anything else, but I didn't really trust the left or the rights you know, version of things during it. I know it's, I think you can see that certain people have used it for their own advances. But in terms of a Moses to lead us, you know, <laughs> yeah, across the wilderness, there certainly isn't anybody, not any politician, not any medical body, which I would trust to be that Moses. I'd just watch and see if Moses got there safely before I'd follow him, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's well, it's interesting that you say that. Because I, I would say, strategically, not speaking politically or anything, but if I was just, what do I know? 31-year-olds, I can, I can figure it all out, right? Um, but if, if President Biden wanted to bring a lot of, uh, what's the word I'm looking at? A lot of confidence uh, for those that have not been vaccinated I feel like the strategic move would be give a lot of credit to President Trump, who like did so much work on the front end, right. right, to say, because then, well, anybody that doesn't trust you, they probably trust him, probably, yeah. right, that not everybody yeah. falls into mm-hmm. that, but yeah. the majority of people would say they trust one of those two men. So if you're just thinking strategically, and if the goal is we just need to get this shot, you know, we need to get the jab into as many mm-hmm. people as possible, why not give credit to the guy who did move the ball forward and you basically kind of picked it up, and and yes, and and both guys, I think if you're if you see that as a valuable thing of, of what you know of getting the vaccine out there, and certain people don't see that as well, that's not valuable. I don't see a lot of value in it, but if you do, it seems like strategically that would be the move. But I think the polarization says we can't give him any credit for it mm-hmm. because then there will be those on our side who knock us, and the people on that side that we want to influence. They probably still won't trust us anyway. Right. Uh, but I think the people in the soft middle would go, well, if both sides are sitting here and they're actually working together on this, I, I could probably get behind it. Versus, I mean, I think there's people, maybe you and I and some people that would agree with us that would go, well, I actually would be more worried about it if both sides are agreeing and, and trying to you know, push one certain agenda on us. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on just the, of that strategically and maybe the polarization and if that is more important, if us being in our camp being right is more important than actually accomplishing the things that we, you know, were for lack of a better term hired, but elected to do. Well, I think obviously the polarization plays a role, but common sense went out of the window pretty early on with a certain proportion of society who wanted to be told how to think, where to walk, how to eat, And you still have these people who are driving around in cars by themselves, double masked, because you can't be too careful, but don't use any common sense or spend five minutes to research on the internet. And I'm not talking from political websites and opinion websites, but actually the science behind, you know, transmission of any type of infectious disease, especially respiratory ones that there are certain things you can do which will lessen your chances of getting it. And there are certain activities you can do which will increase your chances of getting it. 
But there are certainly some things you can do which make no difference whatsoever, yet there are still a lot of people in that holding pattern of doing things which make no difference whatsoever. And right. it's because of political reasons. It's yep. not because it has any practical reasons, any helpful reasons. And in terms of the vaccination, you know, when you've got one party which spends most of its lifetime projecting this my body, my choice, and then all of a sudden wants to not force, but getting close to it in some of the language, you know, force everybody to take what by any definition of any other period in history would describe this as a experimental vaccine right. that it it's become a political thing oh you're not vaccinated you know you must be you know a republican or a conservative or you know this person's driving they've got two masks on and a you know beekeeper's outfit they must be a democrat and you know when you go out towards the edges those characterizations are true you know uh, you mentioned something earlier about, you know, average life expectancy, okay? And I can't remember whether this was on mic or off mic, but... I think it was off I think it was yeah. off mic, but you were talking about average life expectancy in the time of Jesus. And, you know, when you take out all the people who died because of disease, malnutrition, uh, people basically killing them, <laughs> yeah, and you take out you know, the people who have lived to abnormally long ages and you actually get that middle, perhaps 60%, that, yeah, you can have maybe the average life expectancy was around 60. Right. But you take certain states in the United States to say, oh, the life expectancy is only 64. But, you know, perhaps if we use an example of, say, somewhere like Chicago, right? Mm. If you've got even 10 people under the age of 25 being shot dead each weekend and you'll count on those in the statistics you know just one person maybe being shot dead at 17 years old has an effect if you group them in with another nine people of a similar age it affects the average life expectancy even though for those other nine people it has no effect you're trying to find a correlation which you then apply to everybody when in fact you have to treat almost everybody like an individual because if you're not making the same life choices, you're not in the same geographical area, you don't have the same struggles, then saying the average white American male has a life expectancy of 77 years doesn't really mean anything because you can make choices today and not committing suicide but you can make choices today which will end your life tomorrow absolutely you can make lifestyle choices today which may elongate your life for another 10 or 15 years barring something outside of your control something unforeseen so life expectancy is a bit difficult when you throw it in there but i think it's a good example to use when you take popular opinion that you can't just get rid of the 5% on either side. So you take politics, you think, all right, 5% radicals on the far left, 5% radicals on the far right. The problem is you then have the people who are influenced by those radicals or perhaps Correct. share some of those ideologies. And really you have to perhaps get rid of 15 or 20% in either, on either side and take that middle 60 to get a true representation on what perhaps an average which might apply to the majority of people is because you know i've got friends who were interested in the whole kind of q movement thing mm -hmm. yeah and to me i looked at it as a bit of a larp you know a live action role-playing thing because there was some elements of truth 
in terms of information interchange from you know documents which were released from whistleblowers things which came out which the american public at large weren't really aware of but people tried to tie all those bits together and again like you mentioned earlier about your friend who has this feeling that you know this whole deep state thing that the dice are you know loaded before you even enter the game which is which I mean it is true it doesn't matter whether you're black white who you are it's loaded because there's always going to be barriers to entry sure uh, and that can come from anything from just simple favoritism I mean if you know two people come for an interview and there's somebody who supports the same soccer team as me or there's somebody who comes in and they're wearing something I don't like you have an automatic bias I don't think yeah. it's so deep people like to blame something like racism or sexism but sometimes it's something far more shallow which just <laughs> makes that choice it's not an inherent you know dislike towards a whole section of people it's just something which sets you off but now it seems like every reason has to have this deep reason for why it was said done or made and they try and choose the worst reason for what it might possibly have been and then people are like oh well I don't want to be like that and so people end up conforming so they don't stand out you know they don't get accused of things which never even cross their mind and it's a dangerous time in politics not just at the political level but even people at the peasantry level hmm. people are afraid now to say something in case it comes back and bites them in the backside they're afraid to lose their job because they posted on facebook that they didn't like a particular person yeah you know with a, this is the first time in the world this situation has existed and so instead of really bringing up a whole social group which should be free to share ideas and we evolve through these shared ideas, what it's done is given the opposite effect and people now are just shutting up because they don't want to get in trouble and it's gone almost as bad to living in a communist regime where you don't want to speak out against anything in case you get dragged off in the middle of the night. Now, I know that's an extreme example, but right. people are feeling it's not too far from that because symbolically, you losing your job, you losing your income, not being able to take care of your family, over the long term, that's worse than you just being taken off and just being arrested and questioned for one night. Yeah. You know, you, they yeah. can basically shut your life down and completely ruin it and use and your family's livelihood because you expressed an opinion. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because I've had friends that have said, like, are you worried? Like, you're doing you're doing a podcast. Like, you're putting your, your voice recorded mm -hmm. for anybody, first of all, to either manipulate or, yeah. or they can just pull a clip and they can, you know, 50 years down the line, they can say, oh, this is who you are. Right. And they said, are you worried about that? Or I've had people that have said, hey, I want to have you on. I've said, I'd like to have you on to discuss this topic. And they are legitimately scared. They're like, I can't discuss that topic. Right. Because, or maybe I'll discuss it, but I can't discuss this part. And it's not for any, you know, intelligence or anything like that. It's, it's literally simply, well, I'm scared that my social credibility and I may lose my job if I express this right. certain idea. Mm -hmm. And I, was, I would say that's on both sides. I have liberal friends that would say that. Hey, if I say I support you know this person, my my more conservative friends here in Texas will automatically you know mm -hmm. disown me, or vice versa. Or I have you know friends that would on the right hand side that would say if I do that, it'll sound like I'm I don't know whatever. Just put the easy term. Oh, it'll sound like I'm racist, yeah. which is the worst. I mean, you can't be called anything worse than a racist now in today's right. society. Mm -hmm. um, even though, again, 90-something percent of the country 
would say racism is a bad thing. I really, truly yeah. believe that. Mm-hmm. And yet it gets thrown out there and, you know, for a multi, you know, there's there's so many different factors that could go in. But uh, the point I guess I'm making is people are legitimately scared of these things and they're scared to the point that they, they won't even come on here on, on a podcast that how many people, I mean, how many people are listening to and what impact will it actually have? Yeah, we've, we haven't, try to be too careful on our podcast in terms of what we say because it was pretty much communicated early on that what we say is mostly tongue-in-cheek and Mm. don't take it seriously i remember that yeah and we will say things which if you took them out of context and if you applied them widely as this is what we believe then yeah, you could come up with some pretty bad stuff from some of the things we've said. I mean, we don't, you know, involve too many racial conversations in things, but certainly cultural ones we will. We'll be like, you know, why does India worship cows and things like this? And on some platforms, that might be even considered a racist thing just to raise that question. Mm. You know, why? well, why shouldn't they? Have you got a problem with India's worship? No. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean... It, it, don't tell me it's any worse than Western kids worshiping TikTok. Yeah. Um, no. So I mean, I, I don't have any problem, but I'm also not so bludgeoned down that I don't notice differences. Growing up, right from my teens, you know, probably until now. I mean, I've had a mix of friends from you know all over the world, different colors, different skins, and it never crossed my mind to put a label on that person in terms of how I would treat them because of where they came from or the color of their skin. To mm. me, you're either an a-hole or you're not. Yeah. You know, there's no guarantee you can come from the most conservative Christian family and just be an absolute jerk. You know, you can be a complete atheist of, you know, any racial origin and be a fantastic, selfless, awesome person. And so I've always taken people you know, as I see them and, well, not see them, but as, you know, I experience them. But it seems now like if you criticize somebody and they just happen to be of another culture or just happen to be of a different skin culture, sorry, skin color, that they decide your uh, actions or words are based upon that person's skin or not based upon their personality. And they decide that you said that or did that because of that person's skin culture. Sorry, skin color. I don't know why I keep saying it. Skin color or culture. And we don't abide by that rule on the podcast. I mean, we will say if it's a person, we don't care what color they are, where they come from. If they've done something stupid, we'll call it out. If they've right. done something awesome, we'll call it out. You know, we don't have any differentiator. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's interesting because I, I don't know. <laughs> may, may get in trouble here even even trying to make this comparison, but uh, we talked about 9-11 earlier. Mm-hmm. I mean, life for, like, my family got very different after sure. 9-11. Yeah. Um, my, my dad owned a gas station. He, he closed on a gas station September 1st, 2001 yeah. in rural, in Boyd, Texas. So very, like, rural, uh, yeah, rural Texas. And I can say his first 10 days versus the time that he owned that business after got very very different and versus while you know people may have some ignorant ideas in in rural america they have some very ignorant ideas in urban america too sure but but the yeah but things just changed and i would say they changed in some cases with some people they looked at arab people 
as a monolith. First of all, they right. I mean the difference here, but they looked at Arab and Muslim and they put the two together. So if you're Arab, mm-hmm. you must be a Muslim. Not sure you know, doesn't always doesn't always track. Um, but I mean things as simple as going to the airport. I went to the airport. We visited Lebanon in in the summer of 2001, and the even just internationally traveling was very very different yeah. uh, then than it is now and right. so I think but here's what I would say but it is also okay to point out hey all of those hijackers 19 or 21 of them I can't remember the specific number mm-hmm. but all of them were Arab and they were from Arab yeah. countries well and most so, of them from Saudi Arabia in terms of the passports right. which were issued um, but again there's a lot of conspiracy theories behind that in terms of well they could have come from any country and you know just happened to be issued Saudi Arabia passports I mean it's not hard I don't know how hard it has always been I would actually say it's probably it used to be easier in the past because there were less ways you could check the validity of certain papers and issuance before certain networks you know came along and um, you know between nations being able to exchange information travel information uh you know, criminal, you know, pasts, etc. And so certain countries have shared this information and we've made it more difficult for terrorists to travel. But once you're outside of that, you can pretty much, as long as you have the money, I mean, you could get, you know, a Yemeni's, you know, passport tomorrow, you know, if you had like $400. Mm-hmm. And you could go, you know, to the gate at JFK in New York and they wouldn't be able to tell whether it was a fake or not certainly from looking at it and they might run it through the system but the person who you bought that passport from might also know somebody who works in the passport issuing office who might have put it in the system legitimately for you and so nobody would know who that person is whether they're a terrorist who they are so I don't think there's any barriers to prevent anybody you know coming in and doing what they want outside of perhaps our sleuth, our detective um, chances of eventually reverse engineering and finding where this person came from, who financed it, what was really behind it, that's where the risk lies, I guess. Of It's not that you can't get away from the app, but you're going to find out who was pulling the strings at the end of it. Mm. you know. And then that retribution comes along. Now, in the case of Saudi Arabia so what that they all came from Saudi Arabia you know you could probably find in I don't know North Tarrant County if you looked hard enough and you could actually find them maybe 30 radicals who would do the same thing Hmm. if they had the opportunity and the funding Right. you know so you can't point at country and say oh yeah everybody from Saudi Arabia is a terrorist everybody in Iran is you know a terrorist and they all hate America and want to nuke it you can't say the thing about you know people in China because outside of the CCP you know we don't know what the average Chinese person thinks about the West you know we're taught that 2 billion people hate us and so we need to be very scared of China but it might be the furthest thing from the truth at the moment it seems like there's more people in America who hate America than you know voices coming from China so I mean I think it's a very difficult thing free speech it seems to only work one way and that works in the way whoever's steering the ship you know, you can encourage people to drive towards the destination you're already going to. Yeah. But if you have any, let's try sailing over there, they quickly quell and shut down that dissenting voice. So you've just got to enjoy the trip. And when you get to the destination where well, you can walk to that place you wanted to go <laughs> mm. to, because we're not taking you there. And I think, 
I, I don't know what's going to make it any better. It's either going to get to such an extreme that almost everybody rejects it, or we're going to split and just go two completely separate ways because I can guarantee you if you sat somebody down on the other side of the table from, you know, perhaps upstate New York or Northern California, they'd have perhaps more in common with us than, say, somebody who lives in South Dallas in terms of their political views. Hmm. But equally, you know, you can take somebody from, you know, Southern California and we may have nothing in common whatsoever in terms of political views, but personal interests, everything else, we might be dead on. And so I think you have to learn not to talk about specific things or realise what the hot potatoes are, because if you put people's back hairs up immediately, yeah, you never get anywhere. And so that's why I say I try to take people how they come how they treat me, how I see them treat other people. And if that's fine, I don't really care who they support politically, who they support athletically. Yeah. You know, I'm going to try and find the things which we have in common. And, you know, unless you're going out, you know, murdering old people at three o'clock in the morning or doing something abhorrent, then... I'm not. You know, don't there's worry. not... There's <laughs> a, you know, I don't, I don't think there's a good reason to not give everybody a fair shot, you know. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that, and, and I guess we probably have a lot more with in common with the rural farmer who is, you know, uh, whose livelihood comes from the Yellow River in China, who doesn't yeah. care about any of these things that yeah. we care about. And I mean, even if you take a metric like Christianity, that there's more Christians in China, number-wise, not, not, yeah. not population and not percentage yeah. But just number, but mm-hmm. raw numbers. There's more Christians in China than there are in the United States. Yeah, and you think like, so how how do we have this idea that oh China are the bad guys, um, or China, or maybe you think oh China's great because you know you're you like the way that they run run things politically. Uh, but I think if we instead of just assuming everybody is there, we saw this in the election. We saw people didn't understand why Latinos specifically. I'm, I'm married to a Latino woman. And they didn't understand, well, why did more Latinos vote for President Trump this time than they did the first mm-hmm. time? But it's because there's this this deep, deep misunderstanding of the culture. Right. And you think, well, all Latinos think blank, but you really yeah. break them down. Sure. They're family people. They're usually, they're more, they're more family oriented. Mm-hmm. They're more religious. They're more all of these things that you would yeah. typically go, mm-hmm. oh, that's what a white evangelical does. Yeah. And the idea that you have of white evangelical actually probably matches up closer with a Latino right. person who you've never met before mm-hmm. than the white evangelicals that you seemingly think are the big bad guys now of culture. Yeah. Now, I have a lot of Hispanic friends I've made through, you know, coaching soccer mm-hmm. and, yeah. you know, just general social circles. And yeah, the majority of them would identify conservatively certainly on the fiscal level because they want to build a stable you know home and they want to feel like if i put in the hard work i want to be rewarded for that hard work and forget the type of work i do because i know there's always a stereotype you know of like oh you know hispanics it's landscape <laughs> gardening yeah. or you know whatever form of manual labor as if it's like some pariah of a profession and it's as we first started talking about, I mean, those people 
are just as important as you know the lab technicians or anybody else because again society wouldn't function it wouldn't function in the same way and i hate the accusation from various people on the right that the more people we let in we're gonna have you know less jobs for americans it's like you know what if somebody can come into the country not speaking the language have no contacts and take a job and earn money and you've been sitting on your backside and you're complaining about this person taking work i don't think that person is necessarily the problem in this whole equation now if you want to get angry at the government for letting people in you know and feeling that we can't perhaps float an extra you know 100 million people financially you know take care of them in certain social welfare aspects i can kind of understand that yeah let's cap immigration until the country gets stronger economically or whatever but being angry at people coming into the country who 99 percent of them you know just want a better life but they're willing to work and they manage to get a job and they manage to get money and then people are bitching about people who have come in and got a job it's like well good for them they came in they had no contacts can't speak the language they know that a certain proportion of the country is angry at them for coming in and yep. yet they come in do a job and it's like really there's just people just trying to live a life do you not honestly think if they had the choice and were able to live this type of standard life in their own countries they probably would have liked to have stayed there i mean i don't want open borders because again that's uh, that's a slow suicide you've got to have some level of i guess not educational background because there are certain people who have done very well and become multi-millionaires through very little you know educational input so i think that's a bad thing and also we don't know the standard of colleges and what they're taught in a lot of other countries so to say oh you've got a degree you can come in and apply for a job well why why not that 17 year old person who dropped out of school at age 12 to help feed their family why should they not be able to come in and work if they're willing to work so i think some of the criteria is a bit you know, weird. Now it's okay if somebody's been arrested for you know 400 hardcore drug offences and 19 murders. Perhaps we should stop them at the border and tell them to do a Perhaps. turnaround. Yeah. You know, yeah. we don't we don't kind of need people like that. But that's not discriminatory on any type of cultural or racial level. That's purely that person's a piece of crap. Let's not have them come in the country. Yeah. And that's my really only barrier to immigrants is that yeah we don't want to be letting people in not somebody you know was caught with marijuana when they were 16 you know 20 years ago and now they can't come in the country for the rest of life because this is stupid right right i mean the majority of crimes involving soft drugs tend to be victimless crimes it's just that you know you're paying homage to a system which has dug its heels in and been very strict and almost spiteful in terms of how it's been applied to people and it's devastated entire communities of both colors and people have been demonized and removed from the normal system over something which in probably 20 years 30 years time will look back and see was actually pretty inhuman in a way when you've allowed people to you know run around drinking alcohol for the last however many hundreds of years causing goodness knows how many car crashes fights relationship breakups infidelity and all the damage that's had on society but you ruin a kid's life because at 15 you know they smoke some pot in high school so i think you know we've we've definitely got to look at people individually on a mass level if that makes sense as in we shouldn't discriminate against large groups of people because of the actions of a few 
which again is the whole core of the thing of racism people's experience of people of different colors or cultures they treat everybody as their first i guess introductions to that you know race or culture and we're all guilty of it i mean if i see i don't know a black person i will make certain assumptions about them if they see a white person they'll make certain assumptions now is that racism or is that just generally historically knowing through social relationships that there are differences and what's so wrong about having differences i mean that's the worst thing it's like some of the explanations or definitions of racism now is identifying differences in culture like oh we're all the same no we're not all the same definitely we're not all the same and i love the differences this is the thing unless their differences is they like to cut their children's heads off and eat them you know i'm pretty open to most of the differences you know people with different cultures and colors bring to the table and so to me recognizing the difference isn't racism now if you're saying oh you know black people are stupid because blah 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 then yeah that's out and out racism ridiculous right and the same thing if they turn around and say that generalize white people along those lines it's racism i don't think there's such a thing as reverse racism it's just racism period and you know i i kind of get that's stupid and completely wrong but if you have to be afraid to talk about a person and say certain things because of their color or culture when if another person did the exact same thing you'd have open season to be able to criticize them or compliment them then i think that's very wrong because we're steering a million miles away from M- what mlk's kind of uh, vision about judging people by the character yeah mm-hmm. the character the content of their character mm-hmm. rather than you know yeah rather than the color of their skin yeah and so yeah it, it shows up in you know little ways it shows up in the fact that if i if i'm filling out any form and it says like what race are you i mean i it's it's been so weird i remember as a kid going well do i put white because like some forms will will have arab underneath white but yeah. it's like you and my dad they consider the same race right which my dad is 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 a dark-skinned arab yeah. who has grown up in a very different culture than yeah. than british culture sure. and it's like how how do those fit together or am i asian because lebanon is technically in asia but are you meaning asian or are you right. meaning pacific islander and so i it shows up in so how do you that's that's a very simple uh more innocent way to say well how if you're gonna sit there and go well these people are allowed to be criticized on this basis but Mm -hmm. these people are not allowed to be criticized well so what what do you do then for that and these issues come up in many different ways i'm just choosing to use a very innocent one to say so how how would somebody label if you're going to label me a certain race well and certain people would call me white or white passing because of the color of my skin but the culture that I was raised in was very different than that. And even so much to to the point that my dad would use language that would say, well, Americans do this. And mm-hmm. it was very confusing to yeah. me, an American, mm-hmm. who would look at my dad and say, we are Americans. Like, what are you talking about? You're yeah. a citizen of this country. Yeah. How how could this be done? And so I, I, I guess the point that I'm making is you can't, right? You can't just look at somebody and say, it's impossible to say, oh, you're you're a Brit, so this is the way you think because mm-hmm. you're a Brit. Yeah. Well, not far, far from it, right? You could take two Brits and you could be more different, right? And we see this, uh, last thing I'll say is, we see this with Christianity. I would say that I probably have more in common with, for the things that matter, with somebody from 
that you know that farms near the Yellow River than I do with someone who could live next door to me that would be the same skin color, come from the same you know maybe they're they're half white, half Arab, but they're I, idealistically they're a Muslim and they think differently politically and they think all these things and so somebody from the outside could look at us and say, oh, you guys are probably really similar. You guys are probably, you guys are basically the same person. And I go, no, I mean, far right. from it. I'd be, you know, just from the outside looking in or from looking at these, uh, I said the last thing I'll say, looking at these, these factors, I don't think are as big of an indicator of who a person is right. as other factors that we seemingly just throw off to the side. Yeah. And I think you know, the labels we put on people to protect them actually end up doing more damage because you don't get a real experience of life if people artificially have to talk to you in a way that they're trying not to offend you, even though you probably wouldn't be offended, but some people are offended on your behalf and so have decided in society you can't say that thing. Now, if you take Hispanics for an example, I mean, your wife, some people might look at her and be like, oh, she looks slightly Asian. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. And uh, you look at some Hispanic people, and they look Middle Eastern, right? But you know, your wife's family might have been here for two hundred years. Same thing with some Hispanic people who look Middle Eastern. They might be two hundred yeah. years. Yet you might have a white person walking around who arrived from Sweden yesterday. Yeah. You know, just because, you know, the color of the skin is no indicativeness of, you know, a connection with a country, you know, love for a country. Again, it comes down to people's actions and their individual personalities, which defines them. But it's too difficult for us to, with however many billion people in the world, for us to go on a case-by-case basis. So we tend to, you know, lump people together. But we do it with, you know, even other white people. I mean, if we have to describe what are people like from... I don't know, San Francisco. We'd come up with a bunch of stereotypes. We'd come up with things, perhaps not so much from personal interaction, because I can't off the top of my head recall anybody I've met from San Francisco, but certainly I can recall news articles from San Francisco where maybe perhaps they've adopted some rather odd and unusual social practices, such as pooping on the street. Um and you think about the local government where they've put their money and why they're not combating this and this and you come up with this automatic kind of prejudice or way of thinking and my first thing I think if somebody sat down across the table from San Francisco I would ask them about those things they look the only kind of view we get of San Francisco from the media regardless of whether it be from the left or the right these are the kind of hot issues now tell me is this really this bad can you not walk down your street without playing a, having to play hopscotch with homeless people poop I mean is it really that bad or is this just down to a quarter of a mile area out of right. whatever because you know things are exemplified and blown out but when you have very little personal social interaction to prove otherwise you start building this I wouldn't even say it's prejudice just this idea or collection of ideas around somebody and what their life experience is and what their attitude to life is you know, and I don't know if, you know, maybe maybe we could take a weekend trip to San Francisco and not experience anything that we've seen on the news whatsoever in the last decade. But somebody might go there for an hour and experience everything they've seen on the news. And when we got back, we'd have very different views of what 
San Francisco is and what San Fran- yeah. people from San Francisco are like. But we do it from even here in Texas. We have views on what people in East Texas are like, people in West Texas, you yeah. know, southern part of Texas are like, people in the panhandle are like. I think tribalism exists at almost every level. I mean, we're going to differentiate ourselves, but I think we differentiate ourselves more to belong than to actually get push people away. We yeah. want to find something we have in common with people and stick together i mean kids form groups and cliques even in grade school you know well kindergarten and pre-k you know groups come together and it's at that point in time it's about more on what they have in common and likes and dislikes you know you don't get a division of black kids hispanic kids and white kids and asian kids you know in pre-k you find people who you like people who are friendly people who have something in common and that's it you run with it Mm -hmm. and it's not until you know outside influences point out at a later time or date that well it's kind of a bit odd you hanging around with that asian person because you know they come from a country which is not traditionally that supportive of you know the united states and you know did you know that you know 70 years ago we were actually at war with this country and you know and you're supposed to formulate a whole revised opinion of somebody based upon history you were never aware of which is supposed to affect a personal relationship. So now I can't mention this in front of this person in case, you know, I offend them. And because yeah. I remember, like, in grade school, I mean, with Asian people, if somebody said to you, "What does an Asian person look like?" You're gonna enact stereotypes. Yeah, yeah, you're going to, but it's innocent. You, by no means, when you say, like, when you were six years old, you know, if you point out that many Asian countries you know people's eyes are uh, you know of a different shape than a traditional western is you're not being racist you're just pointing out an actual factual difference and if, if you asked you know an asian kid of the same age what's the difference between westerners well like, they have rounder eyes they're full of eyes not being racist it's just a fact yeah. it's a characteristic it's a personal characteristic you're not saying that person's better or worse yeah he's pointing out a difference which is a true fact but now that's considered racist i mean there was somebody on the news who was um I think they'd made a comment years and years ago, and I don't even like this person, so I don't know why I'm kind of saying this because it sounds like I'm sticking up for them, but they made some comment about Asian people having squinty eyes, right? Which, technically, if you want to go from it, you want to approach it from a pre-K type of description of somebody, yep, okay, they do. So what? I've I've known people, white people with squinty eyes. I've known white people with very bulbous eyes. You know those people Mm -hmm. that almost looks like their eyeballs are popping out of their head? But, so what? Yeah. It doesn't affect how I feel about that person. It doesn't delimit what I think they're capable of. It doesn't lessen them in my eyes in terms of the role of society, what they can achieve. So to me, that's not racism. It's just me noticing a difference which they themselves notice, I notice. Now, if I treat them differently based upon that, different matter. Sure. You know? But if you start teaching kids, hey, it's wrong to notice differences. You know, Michael's skin's darker than yours, so you need to treat him differently. Yeah. You know, you've got to walk around now apologizing a lot more if you happen to win something you've got to give it to michael because apparently you know there may have been some disparities in the way these things have been handed out in the past so you've got to suffer for it and you're bringing up kids with like i said you're trying to take away the innocence which you know they had at an earlier age and get them to carry the guilt which other people had the luxury to forego i think yeah sorry that's a long-winded answer no no uh, (laughs) i mean i i think that's a good I think that's a good place to, I think that's a good place to land, is that, yeah, I mean, uh, I hope, 
my hope is that in the generation, I mean, we, we both have uh, young boys. Your your son's mm-hmm. about to be eight. My son's about to be two in a few months. And I hope that the world that we raise them in, I hope that that's not the case. That we can't. Mm-hmm. N- how do I say this in a positive? That we are allowed to point out differences and have discussions like this with people who for whatever reason certain groups don't want to work together people want to point fingers and say oh you're the enemy of this person you're you're not supposed to associate with them you're not supposed to do this or you're not supposed to ask that question because uh, for whatever reason right because yeah. well because their skin color is this color is darker so they're less or, or yeah. know, very you know ideas of, oh well they're the <laughs> they're the descendants of Cain right all the way to well because their skin color is lighter they have carried a privilege that you will never get sure and so you're gonna have to operate in the world in a way that is and it's like well I, I just hope that those conversations and so when somebody says something like that I hope that there is a conversation that's allowed to come up to say well why or or, or why is it that way yeah instead of having to put the brakes on it and say well I can't really say anything because if I share a very honest opinion about this that maybe doesn't exactly line up with these certain people now my phrase and my words will get used against me and I'll yeah I'll lose my job I'll lose all of this or I'll lose all these friends because I I voted for a certain person or yeah. I didn't vote mm-hmm. for a certain person um yeah I, I hope that we can I hope that we can get to that place well I think a couple of good examples over the last two months uh Sleeping Beauty apparently on a new ride, a Sleeping Beauty ride at one of the Disney um, places, they had to remove or alter one of the rides because it shows the prince kissing Sleeping Beauty. And the so-called uproar was about that because she was in a coma or whatever she was in, deep sleep, that she couldn't give consent to that kiss. And so it was inappropriate. And it's teaching kids that, you know, it's okay to kiss without the person's consent. And, you know, the second example... Um, is one where you know all this going back in time and you know rewriting or completely taking out scenes from old movies or songs which went 30 or 40 years uh, without causing any offence and then somebody picks up a line and says like you know like baby it's cold outside right they decided that that sounds a little bit rapey in terms of some of the lyrics because he doesn't want her to go and so pleased with her to stay yeah. and stuff and the sad thing is everything everything will come <laughs> by now all of a sudden <laughs> yeah the sad thing is that it's probably only 1% of 1% of people on the left who actually think that way and the other you know proportion of people on the left or even if they identify as liberals think that stuff's just as crazy as we do yeah. but the way it's presented you then have a large proportion of people on the right who think well that must be the attitude of everybody on the left yep. but equally you know people on the left are being taught that you know everybody on the right are all you know capital building insurrectionists and we all you know hate immigrants and we're all anti every single vaccination not just this particular shot doesn't classify the vax i recall refuse to call it a vax um but 
again, it's this one percent of one percent of people who, you know, they make they make the news because it seems so outlandish and so outrageous. But then we formulate this view that okay, well, that's the opinion of people on the left. They think there are over two hundred genders, whereas for all the Democrats I know, none of them think there are two hundred genders. Yeah, I agree. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, but so again, it'd be easy to label and be like, "Oh yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to go and you know socialize with that person. They're a Democrat, so you know they're going to be offended at something I wrote on Twitter, you know, nine years ago." But truth is, people aren't like that. But I think we're being pushed to view that it is a huge, huge problem and a huge conflict, which is a daily, hourly conflict. Where in reality, I mean, how many people have you met day to day? week to week month to month who really share any of those extreme views from the left or the right you know i wouldn't tell i wouldn't be able to tell with most people whether they're democrat or republican even after talking to them for 30 minutes unless i ask them specifically they don't come out right. with these radical right. things of like we need to overthrow the government or you know we shouldn't tell our dog you know good boy because it's you know assigning them a gender and they might feel like they're a female and by calling them good the other pet you didn't call good might now have insecurity issues yeah the majority of people don't feel like that just because a liberal might have said that or you know some conservative person in east texas might have said yeah well it's time for an insurrection we need to overthrow the government doesn't mean all people on the right share that viewpoint you've got oddballs in society and again even that becomes a oh well now you're being offensive to people with mental health well you know what just tell me what words i can use and i will find a way to make those offensive in some way if you allow me to i remember there was an old episode of friends where joey was i think showing maybe phoebe or monica they could turn any word or phrase and make it sound kind of like dirty yes yeah yeah, you know? I and it, yeah and i can't remember what it was it's like aunt caroline's apple pie yeah you know it's like you can turn anything and make it inappropriate yeah. Yeah. you know and i think that's where it's out they, they just look to make literally anything you know inappropriate yeah yeah well i <laughs> i think that's a good that's a good place right there i mean we can uh yeah we can end on the friends note we can end on uh, yeah, if if you are somebody that does that, if you are somebody that is so polarized by some of these opinions, maybe take a second. Yeah. Take a second to actually talk to the person that maybe does offend you, that maybe their social media yeah. posts, uh, you don't like them. Mm. Take a second or, or just try to engage with them on something other than that. And I think you would be surprised to see how much you really do have in common, that you really can connect with that person. And uh, there, there is so much more that is way more valuable than these uh these well, for lack of better verbiage but these dumb ideas yeah. that seem to to separate us but and, also and i'd say go ahead yeah take some level of personal responsibility because it's not all about the other person being thin-skinned and being offended because you can say the same thing say it in different ways and it have very different meanings so we do have Absolutely. care to everybody to you know how we deliver our message i just want to leave on my part with an example from ricky gervais on one of his (laughs) stand-up tours he said you know the words you say and the way you say them can have very different effects he said let me give this example he said if uh one of your friends who you haven't seen in about six months pulls out you know a photo of their daughter who you haven't seen in a few years and they show you the photo and you go oh yeah she's beautiful 
it sounds very dismissive, like you don't care, you don't care about family, everything else. But if you take too long and you say the same words, he said it can come out even worse. And he goes, so if you take the photo and you're like, oh, mm, oh, yeah, she's beautiful. He said, that can come across as creepy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. The the, the phrase I use uh, that that I always used for that or heard used for that uh, exact idea was, uh, well, I didn't say you were fat. And if you right. emphasize any mm. of those words, yeah. it's going to have, I didn't say you <laughs> yeah. were fat. I didn't say you were fat. I didn't and, say yeah. you were fat. I didn't say you were, right? So yeah. you can do that and, and you're right. Like, there. Yeah. <laughs> have have fun with that one. Um, you can have anything that can say that. And you're right, personal responsibility. We have to be responsible. And again, if you, for myself, uh, you know, looking at it like we have a higher responsibility if you say that you're a Christian, if you label yourself that way. Mm. You have a higher responsibility to, for your political affiliation, how do you represent God in that? Now, that doesn't mean that you can't have strong opinions. You can have strong opinions. Jesus had strong opinions on things. Um, but in the way that you develop them and the way that you deliver them, I think, like you said, I think it's incredibly important of how we do that. And if you are somebody that calls yourself a Christian, you have to say, hey, my, my first responsibility is ultimately reconciling, bringing people back to God. And so if there's something that's going to cause me to not do that because I get so caught up on, I really like cheeseburgers and this person really likes fish. And now all of a sudden we're going to separate and we're going to be different people and we're not going to associate because of something so silly. I mean, yeah. And, and people would think, oh, nobody would ever do that. But just why don't you just look at the things that you choose to not uh associate with people and sometimes they're not as as ridiculous as as a change like that um tristan do you have anything this is this has been fun i think this is the first episode that we've touched on i i, I can't even this was not even the map that we had set out but i really enjoyed it i really enjoyed the time i think we we did touch on almost about a thousand different topics here um i appreciate your 40 percent that you that yeah you put in. yeah thank you no thanks for having me on um i don't normally have a good track record of following <laughs> of following routes when it comes to like interviews and podcasts and stuff. So that's kind of normal, really. Par for the course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, well, thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. You guys um, check out The Wolf and the Shepherd. Um, you can do that on any, any podcast streaming platform. You can find mm -hmm. them there. Um, you're going to like it. If you like this podcast, if you like different topics, you're going to get a lot of different topics, a lot of a lot of stuff, and I, I appreciate the the flavor that you guys bring to these different topics. Yep, and uh, we don't have any cussing on there, there so it's children friendly. Yeah, uh, it's not always brain friendly because sometimes we talk about ridiculous topics. And um, <laughs> check out especially the in other news episodes because we do actually take people from all walks of life, all colors, all political backgrounds, and just point out the ridiculous stories in society just so we have other people to laugh at rather than <laughs> ourselves. So. That's that's a lot of fun. That's a that's a good way to put it. Well, this is this has been the 100,000 podcast. We are an audio magazine. Uh, we've kept it an average of 70 today, um, and we've talked about almost a 1,000 topics, but we, we are signing off. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wolf and the Shepherd podcast. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, thewolfandtheshepherd.com, to your friends and colleagues. And please leave us a positive review on iTunes when you get a chance. Check us out on YouTube, Facebook, 
Instagram, and Twitter for additional content. Join us next time for another episode of The Wolf and the Shepherd. Ooh.